0: Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Natalie Youngline, a writer, producer, and director who's worked on everything from You Gotta Eat Here and Till Debt Do Us Part to CBC's Coroner and the new Family Channel series Ruby and the Well. She also founded BIPOC TV and Film to help Canadian artists who are black, indigenous, or people of color find representation and connection within the industry. And along with Simu Liu, she's the creator, co-writer, and executive producer of Hello Again, a romantic dramedy starring Alex Malari Jr. as Jaden, a Toronto cook who gets a second chance to mend a broken relationship after an encounter with a mysterious little girl. The entire series drops on CBC Gem in Canada today, and it's sweet and it's fun, and you should check it out. Natalie picked Turning Red, which happens to be another story of a Toronto resident whose life is turned inside out by supernatural means. In this case, it's the story of Mylin Lee, a 13-year-old girl who wakes up one day to find she turns into a giant red panda whenever she gets too emotional. The first feature from Oscar-winning Pixar animator Domi Shi, it's a delightful allegory for, well, pretty much everything teenagers go through, powered by lively voice performances from Rosalie Chang, Wei-Ching Ho, James Hong, and the incredible Sandra Oh, and it just so happens to take place a few blocks from the building where I recorded the first year of this podcast. This is someone else's movie.
1: You know, when the trailer first dropped I was like, "Oh, that's really cool." And when I saw it, I was just so overwhelmed, you know? Like I I think I cried a couple of times and uh just the the relationship with the mom is the thing that like really got me and and you know, just like how her whole world fell apart and then came together was just so so unfortunately relatable, <laughs> um, and it's just such a fun, fun and joyous movie. Really,
0: it surprised me too. I had I had seen Bao and interviewed Domi Shi when she was here uh, promoting that. We we actually had the um, the interviews. Disney set her up in Roll Son on mm-hmm. uh, on Spadina, like literally across the road <laughs> from where Bao shot quote unquote right. took place, and where and where Turning Red takes place. And the photorealistic-ish Toronto is was a, a great hook there. And hearing about it in, in Turning around, I said, well, of course, there's going to be details. What I didn't realize was she basically made an, a companion piece to Scott Pilgrim, right? Not just in terms of the use of the city, but in terms of the attitude and the, um, the slightly fantastical world of Toronto in, because Scott Pilgrim is set in 2003.
1: And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this
0: feels like May is going to grow up and, she's going to the same school as Knives Chow. Like, it just feels like there's the same world there somehow, even though this is...
1: Oh, that's so great. I didn't even... I didn't even clue into that. <laughs> no one has brought it up
0: at all in the interviews, uh, which I guess is good, right? Because it means that the, the film can stand on its own. Mm-hmm. But, and it should, because it's, yeah, it's delightful. And the other thing that I was not expecting was that it would just keep getting complicated because so many yeah. animated narrative, or so many... Family films start with the premise and then just maintain it. And every 20 minutes, there's a new complication that actively changes the trajectory of the story and makes it different and more alive and more engaging. Like it's not just about the tiger mom stereotype. It's not just about learning to be yourself. It's not just about the boy band thing. It's it just the moment that her friends find out, it's not a Teen Wolf movie anymore. It's not a secret thing, right? Like it's just, and at every turn, I was just so happy that at no point is a red panda, giant or otherwise perceived as frightening to the other kids. Every single person loves it. And that yeah. is so different from every other puberty metaphor in any movie, right? Where there's some part of it that's horrifying or shameful. It's only ever made its own problem that she has to get past, everybody else is on board.
1: I think that was like one of the many nice surprises is like how the friends embraced her and how people who she thought were not friends like embraced her and thought she was like adorable and cute and everything. And um, I think, I mean, for me, the, the panda thing was a little metaphor for, you know getting your period but really it was about like the part of inside of you that you don't like and you don't accept and you're scared of and the fact that all these other people can like sometimes accept you and love you before you can even love yourself like that is huge <laughs> yeah
0: and and not a message i'm used to seeing in yeah family entertainment even just the idea of acceptance it's it's always the thing that happens at the end of the movie right it doesn't happen 20 minutes in and and yeah the the only awkwardness is well i mean it's generational right and there's that other problem where her family can't handle it even though Mm -hmm. they've all gone through it they want to spare her and that again that felt like a puberty metaphor too like if you could spare your child the pain of of going through adolescence i mean Of course you would. Right. That's something you would want, but everybody forgets as soon as they are clear of it, because I think we try so hard to repress just how horrible that time is. (laughs) And it's not just the physical stuff, right? Like it's the awkwardness of figuring out who you are and
1: um,
0: the excess that, that kids can bring to things that they love. Uh, That's why the boy band thing is so perfect. Um, (laughs) We all understand what it's like to get that hyped up for a thing you, you know, the impulse and it's the thing. I think that's the first thing you learn to hide about your personality is how much you love stuff when you're a kid, because that's not cool. (laughs) Right. Like commitment isn't cool.
1: (laughs) I know. I remember like, I used to love boy George and I would cut out all of his photos and like arrange it, like paste it on my wall and arrange it. And then my sister loved Michael Jackson and like, I I was not part of the in crowd, but the way that I could become part of it was to like go into her room and steal a Michael Jackson photo off her wall and then like sell it to a friend one of her friends so that they would start talking to me. (laughs) So many memories.
0: Well, and I think you being a Boy George fan means in the end you won. But, (laughs) But yeah, that was. And that was before social media, before the internet turning red is like, you know, it's very cleverly just at the edge of all of that stuff where the internet's around, but it's not enough to completely derail the story. And you can still kind of relate to people being in their own silos, people being isolated, kids figuring out what it is they like without any outside help, like mail drawing her own fantasies out is, again, it's it's an intensely private thing that before the internet existed, you couldn't share this stuff. There was no way to, to to find other people who did the same thing. There was just no sense that the world would accept whatever it was that you're doing. Not that it's, you know, we're not talking rule 34 porn of anything, but it's just so strange to think of a time when private thoughts were genuinely private. And, <laughs>
1: And that makes it
0: more terrifying, right? Because these kids haven't grown up in front of cameras and social media the way that the current generation has. They're genuinely mortified when something that they're passionate about is exposed to the world, especially if their mom fucked it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that was like a really brilliant decision that they made to place it in that time period, especially because like, you do just feel so much more isolated in that way. I think one one of the good things about social media is that you can always find you know very specifically someone or a group of people who understand what you're going through or have been there you know you can you can corral that kind of um uh <laughs> army behind you for yeah. lack of a better word um and yeah i i think just like that feeling of uh, like no one will understand me is so universal
0: yeah no one will understand me, and I'm a, hu- a smelly red monster, I think, is the thing that <laughs> yeah. she has, which is the closest <laughs> they get to real body shaming. Um, but I get it, because that's, that's how... That's how... Huh. I'm trying to walk a really fine line here because that's how I want to say that's how advertising conditions people to see themselves, right? Like here are mm-hmm. all these products to make things better. And when uh, when May's mom comes in, she's got everything. She's she's yeah. ready. She's got ibuprofen and pads. <laughs> and, and that's wonderful because I don't think I've ever seen that in, even in a, a modern sitcom where that level of frankness and honesty is prepared, even though she's wrong and that's not what the problem is. Um, and again the next swerve the film sets up is that this is not a surprise to the family they knew it was coming they just didn't tell her because again continuing the metaphor they wanted to spare her they thought they'd have more time and it's just it speaks volumes about how how ming infantilizes may and and refuses to see her as her own person but also ignores this massive giant scary potentially scary problem especially once we find out the scale of her own that's the one thing I'm jumping all <laughs> over the place. It's the one shot I would have cut. Like when, As the soon huge, as I, when the, she the first shot, yeah. That shot of her approaching on the Sky dome,
1: Right, right. Because
0: I don't think we should know how big right up until she actually crashes into the, it's just this one thing where once you see it, you're just like, oh, well, that's going to be, that's a clover field. That's an issue. <laughs> it's an order of magnitude. But if really that is the one shot that I would, quibble with in the entire film, I think that's otherwise a pretty much perfect movie. (laughs) And it's because it operates on all of those levels. It's got all of these, all of these pieces moving in sequence, but also in sync with each other. And uh yeah, I I I have to admit, I haven't really enjoyed a Pixar movie this much in a long time. It feels like they've been kind of running in circles and and soul, yeah, not really. I flat out did not enjoy Luca. And suddenly, Oh, this is what creativity looks like. This is like, this is what one person's voice can do. um,
1: Right. Yeah.
0: With this canvas, with this, with this, with these tools, it's, it's great. It just makes this the whole format feel like it's come back to life.
1: I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm just so fascinated by like visually how I don't even know how they did it, (laughs) but like, it's just so rich visually and like cooking scene with the slow motion of like the lettuce being chopped up and then like you see how the dad sees himself in his glasses and then it just suddenly fades away. It's like, it's so visually beautiful. And then story wise, like it just works on so many different levels. It's, it's, it's really deep, you know, like it's a, it's an immigrant story. It's a story about like intergenerational trauma, you know, and it's a story about intergenerational Um, Like uh, relationships and also the patterns that you repeat, you know, with your own child and, and, um, and friendship and loyalty and (laughs) all of that. And I think that's what makes it so feel so, so different and, and fresh and, and all the turns that you were talking about, like just make it deeper and deeper. And, um, you know, the moment that the grandma calls. Yes. (laughs) you know and suddenly like mom is hiding behind you know hiding under the couch as well it's like oh shit like that's that's why you're so hard on (laughs) me because you are her
0: (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's amazing that um that that cliche still plays because it is like it's it's absolutely rooted in um every every mother-daughter story is you know with the exception of Gilmore Girls where I guess, you know, like the whole point of that show is that she doesn't want to raise her daughter the way she was raised and mm-hmm. that creates its own problems. Uh, and what a weird link that I would make to jump there. But I, uh, I just saw everything everywhere all at once, which also comes back to this idea yeah. of, um, uh, in this case, a, a Chinese family that, uh, came to America a generation previously and is ultimately about parents trying to give their daughter a better life without ever understanding that all the daughter wants is to be with them. And this is a different conflict, but the generational thing and the way that it lines up. um, And that again, the curse of the Panda isn't part of it, which I think is absolutely wonderful that the the curse (laughs) is just something that they deal with. There's a ritual. It's fine. You never have to deal with it again. And you don't think about it as extraordinary because it's always been part of your family. And, and mm-hmm. um I know a couple of, of critics who I respect very much have taken issue with the mysticism of it as, as part of the exoticization of the Asian characters, but using elements that are recognizable and familiar and just saying, oh no, they're real in this world, that kind of made sense to me. Admittedly, I'm I'm not myself steeped in in that culture from, from birth. And If I was seeing it reflected back at me in that way. And if it was something personal, like I'm, I'm watching, oh shit, it's embargoed. I can't talk about it yet, Uh, (laughs) but it is about Eastern European Jews. And that's something that my family comes from and still sort of clings to in a lot of different ways. And I didn't feel uncomfortable with it but there were moments where I thought oh that's a bit much but it's only because I know it inside and out I think someone Mm -hmm. coming to it from the outside would just see it as detail as color and and not think of it any further
1: I mean I think the cultural thing is interesting because my my family is Trinidadian Chinese so a lot of the cultural things or traditions that are you know chinese are filtered through this lens of like the trinidadian take on it so for me like watching it um like i don't have i i feel like i'm i'm one step removed from i don't i don't know <laughs> i don't know what is the authentic chinese experience who knows <laughs> it's everything right it's part of the it's part of the diaspora and how we then reinterpret the culture and so like watching the film felt like that was like another step right like they're they're part of the tradition is this curse that for many years the family thought of as a curse but it's actually you know for for this generation it's a blessing and so what do we do when we when we have parts of culture that like we want to forget or erase or not not be a part of and and how to embrace it in a totally different way, and I think that's why, like when <laughs> when the mom is passed out in the Sky Dome as like massive panda, and then all the all the aunties like become pandas, and they're all like pulling on her, and then the the amalgamation of like the two different styles of music blending together, <laughs> that was like so perfect for me, and that like that was another point where I (laughs) cried. But just like that, kind of like you can, you can make, you can marry these two parts of you and make it into this one thing.
0: Yeah. And the um the songs are kind of ingenious that way. Because like they are just empty boy band bubblegum pop, but written (laughs) with just enough intelligence to know that it's, you know, you're hearing a kind of very, very clever or loving homage rather than a full-on parody. And the way, yeah, the way the chant weaves in with it, as soon as I realized that was happening, it's just like, oh, that's perfect. I love a big (laughs) mashup, but it's just so, it is, it's the synthesis. It's the, it's the moment where it all comes together for everyone. And yeah, I don't know how you watch this movie and feel left out. I get just there that, that ridiculous complaint about um, it being impenetrable to, to someone who isn't interested in the story or already or, or, or themselves uh, of the diaspora is just like, come on, that's movies are about empathy. And, and this is also, I can't imagine anyone would be able to empathize with someone turning into a giant red panda. Cause that's literally never happened.
1: <laughs>
0: we can make the I mean, leap for that.
1: People turning into cars, right. And robots. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've all done that. <laughs> that's <laughs> You know, when you're 17 and you become a Camaro for a week, that's just like a natural, unnatural (laughs) rite of passage. Maybe you have to be part American, but, but it's, it's ludicrous to pick on that as the thing that, as the barrier to entry, right? Because yeah, it's a coming of age picture. It's a parent child picture. It's a high school movie, kind of, it's all just so utterly relatable. And I'm not just saying this because my old building is in the backdrop of several shots, Um, (laughs) but it is like it is just the most gratifyingly, unabashedly Canadian thing in years and years and years. And in no way is it offering any of that stuff as weakness, right? Like it's not laugh at the weird money. It's just, we yeah. have blue, we have blue fives and coins deal with it. Like, that's just, it's part of this world. Again, like people watch movies where elves and orcs trade gold and and they're <laughs> fine with that. This is not a problem. And bags of milk. There are bags of milk. Um, I just saw them in something else too. And I was just stunned that there's a, I think maybe it was an episode of transplant where that thing airs on NBC there's bags of milk on a kitchen table and nobody says anything about it. It's just there.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that. It's just, it's just in Toronto, right. We're not trying to erase it the way that um, so many movies, since we do so much service production here, you know, movies and TV shows try to erase it for something else. And um, I think just that, that sense of pride of being able to identify, you know, parts of Toronto that you can remember pre-massive condos, <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. and all like the small mom and pop shops and stuff, but and even the streetcar. Um that's like all of that is just so so fun. But if you're not from Toronto, it doesn't matter. It's just a, it's a it's a story that's placed in a in a particular place. Right. Like if I if that was in any other city that i've never been in i would just accept it and i think like we as canadians have this hang-up <laughs> like
0: oh absolutely yeah
1: feeling like less than we always have to like prove ourselves or whatever and i this is just so great that it's just it's just going to be shown everywhere and we're going to see the amazing toronto that was
0: yeah and I just love the idea that there are going to be kids who grow up on this and then come here and miss it all. Like it just, oh, I remember a different streetcar. I I thought this would be different. And it's great because even though this thing takes place 21 years ago, it's still like a bygone era. It's 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 a lot further back in a lot of other ways. Um, we just, you know, those are the Miller years. Uh, uh, I was trying to do the math and figure out if um, like, is, is Gretchen still prime minister in this world? Has that not happened yet? When did Harper <laughs> get elected? This is the last bastion of our optimism as a nation. <laughs> um, yeah, when
1: you said 21 years, I was trying to do the math. Like, I know no, it's, it's freaky. Long, it is.
0: <laughs> it's so much further back than you think it is. Um, wow. People born before this are old enough to drink in the States now. Um, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> but it, but it speaks to a, and yeah, it, it's a different Toronto. It's a, it's a sweeter, more innocent Toronto. Um, but all the ideals are still there. You know, like there's, there's a, there's a, a, a diversity in May's school, the, her friend group who are all kind of instantly recognizable types are also different ethnicities that are not quite as instantly recognizable. Um i uh i I love the 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 little subtle hint, which is I think never expressed at all, but it's just there that Miriam is kind of crushing on may here and there. There are moments where that that oh, yeah. character is drawn to look at her in a <laughs> loving fashion, never comes up, never gets stated, and Miriam <laughs> knows that may is is into boys, and so it just never comes up, but it's there, and I think that's just sort of beautiful in that weird subtle oddball kind of way that there are people whose stories aren't being told in this movie can still see themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Miriam is, is totally gay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I love like the, the, the setting of Toronto and the diversity that we're, we could see on the screen. And um, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting that, she didn't have a friend that was black. Um, and I feel like I was, I was thinking about that a lot and like thinking about the pockets of Toronto that you, that Toronto is, because you can be in a pocket of Toronto where it's very not diverse. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> or, you know, like you can be in a pocket of Toronto where it's predominantly Asian or you can be in a pocket where it's predominantly um, Indian. And uh, like, so... Uh, I don't know, not that I'm justifying it, but it was just like, oh, that's really interesting that that she didn't have a friend that was Black.
0: It's been a couple of weeks since I've seen it, but I I don't remember any prominent Black characters.
1: Fortown had one. um, He was... I can't remember his name.
0: (laughs) There was like one black singer in the
1: band.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Robert, Jesse, Aaron Z, Aaron T, and Ty. (laughs)
1: Right. right. And then I think Tyler is, is
0: Blasian. So maybe it is just a demographic thing. And in the school is in Chinatown. So yeah, maybe that explains part of it. Someone on Twitter was asking where the temple was because obviously (laughs) it's real. Um, There is a Buddhist temple on Bathurst Street, but this, uh, this, may's parents place would be due south of the chinatown center as far as i could tell (laughs) because we did you can't help it you're just sort of figuring out the geography of it while you're watching it's like well the baldwin building of kensington market lofts is visible in a bunch of shots and i used to live there so i know straight down right would be chinatown center so it's maybe the atkinson (laughs) development that got uh that got raised. I, know, and is now I was
1: thinking about the Bathurst Temple as well, uh-huh. and I was like, okay, well, Chinatown isn't quite laid out the way Chinatown is, you know, and Spadina is a little bit narrower.
0: Yeah, the in curve movie, in the streetcar so. isn't real. That's more like a <laughs> that's like a Parliament thing. But I I love that her patchwork vision of Toronto allows you to locate everything, even if it's not really there. It's like, well, this would be yeah. that, and that would be here, and <laughs> the, the, she got the fonts on the computer store right. I know, which
1: I think is so great.
0: <laughs> it just feels like something that's been baked with love. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, totally.
0: Uh, when when she made bao, she said that um, they went through. They went to every Chinese restaurant in Oakland and San Francisco. They went through dumpling after dumpling after dumpling. They talked to food photographers to get the looks. Of everything right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it feels like this is some sort of sketchbook memory, right? Like it's just a little pastel. It's a little, it's a little less photorealistic, but it's warm and loving. It's like, it almost plays like a memory in that way that this did happen 20 years ago. And this is just May remembering it as she gets ready to tell it to her kid maybe i don't know i i love i love the idea of things coming full circle but i also just love the idea that there's a wear pen running around out there somewhere right. in toronto
1: <laughs> and then you see the after effects of like Sky Dome being destroyed <laughs>
0: yeah oh which is so great i think i honestly think we should just start telling people that really happened right and then it you got know? rebuilt yeah that's why they call it rogers center they had to build a new <laughs> sign the rogers paid for it they they redeveloped it
1: i mean i refuse to call it the Rogers center for like a number of years when it got rebranded.
0: <laughs> yeah, I still call it the dome. I think just it's easier for people. They understand it. Yeah. You know, if they're not yeah. from here. I suppose this is how New Yorkers behave. You know, like people who were there in the 80s and remember the Lower East Side as this bombed out warehouse mm. and loft thing where punk came from. And with us, it's just like, well, you know, you weren't here before the condos. You don't know. <laughs> you could see the lake. <laughs> You kids today, you have no idea.
1: I mean, it's 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 just changing so fast. Even, you know, since the pandemic and all the restaurants have that have shut down and yeah. now Bato, like you can walk down Dundas two weeks later. It's like it's changed. And I I just hope that there's someone walking around Toronto taking photos before all these buildings get torn down, because it's like it's
0: so fuzzy in my memory now. <laughs>
1: The one thing I wish was in the movie Honest Eds.
0: That's true. They never get there. They never get that far north. <laughs> May and her friends have all the shops in Chinatown and Kensington. They wouldn't need to go to Honest Eds. But yeah, you're right. It's it's so it's so prominent in Scott Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Um, that intersection, like the the record store they shop in, Lee's Palace. Lee's is the only thing left.
1: Oh my God.
0: <laughs> I know it's it is like it's it's a nostalgia machine on an extra level for people who grew up in toronto because that's mm. the city right like that's the end of the the weird funky city that that was and now everything is just sort of steel and glass and anonymous towers we're turning we're manhattanizing the downtown and it's i don't think mm. it's for the better i mean not even manhattan has this many weed dispensaries
1: right oh my god that is just the most annoying thing
0: <laughs> every single coffee right? shop is now a weed dispensary <laughs> yeah Yeah, the coffee shop. They're all selling
1: the same thing because they can't sell anything different.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this can't last. I mean, okay, for the pandemic, it helps us get through, I suppose. But then eventually, it's going to have to reinvent itself. I just don't know what the next thing is going to be. Like artisanal candy stores, something. (laughs) There's going to be. It it won't be more coffee shops. It's got to have to be something else.
1: I don't know, but you got to get ahead of curve. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
0: It'll be Disney stores. They'll all be selling red pandas, which again, I kind of love and would like one. I, 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 I don't think we've discussed the character design at all yet. And it is just this perfect balance of big, cute, fluffy, and also slightly scary. Like the proportions yeah. aren't right. You can tell how, <laughs> how she's struggling to move at, in the first scenes or she's not in control of her body, which again, perfect puberty metaphor, but causing damage, like ruining stuff, smashing things, which, again, is how you feel when you're that age, even if it's not actually happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I remember just the rage that would, like, just suddenly come on for no reason at all. (laughs) But I think if they make, like, an actual merch stuff panda, like, you should be able to remove the ears and the tail so that, like, as you're calming it down and brushing its cheeks, you can, like... (laughs)
0: That's a that's a great idea for a toy, a panda that you can calm down. Yeah, oh, it's not your panda; it's the panda. It's the avatar of rage, and the, the thing that people don't talk about when they get older because it's shameful. Like, they just you don't like who you are when you're in that stage. Uh, a dear friend of mine once pointed out very, very, very smartly that. The people who peak in high school and love themselves then are not people you ever want to know when you're an adult because they have not experienced <laughs> uncomfortableness and discomfort and 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 the idea of not fitting in in any way and so they just don't learn to make accommodations of people yeah. and you see that constantly in Turning Red. You see people making May feel like it's okay, making her know that she's not a monster, telling her it's not her fault. Even even Ming tries. Her mom, uh, Sandra. Oh, again perfect casting for that role because you need someone Mm -hmm. who can be hard but always make us understand where she's coming from like we understand why Ming is the way she is she's trying to protect her daughter at every turn she just doesn't know how to do it
1: yeah I mean I as a mother (laughs) I found that like so relatable and like trying to keep your own anger in and then like suddenly feeling like you're exploding because you're so like protective of your child um it was interesting because I I the second time I saw it was with my family so we were like my mom my dad oh, wow. <laughs> and my daughter it was like an intergenerational watch and <laughs> everyone was like laughing and loved it and when when Sandra O's character turned into this big monster like my daughter Burst out laughing, and I could feel she didn't have to say anything. I could feel she was like, "That's my mom." <laughs> <are you> <laughs> oh no!
0: Is that how you want to be seen by a Disney movie?
1: It's <laughs> a <laughs> big, humongous panda.
0: <laughs> I mean, powerful and not to be screwed with. I get that,
1: right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the uh, yeah, and and just the way that it sort of sets that up with the one with the big scar on, on Ming's mother's uh, uh, face mm-hmm. that now, of course, if the panda was always that big, that's like, she was holding back. That's really, that speaks to her own restraint and her ability to control her rage. Cause something that big would just pick you up and throw you across town. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, again, it's a character moment. That's just tucked away. It's disguised in the detail in a way that I did not see coming. And it's just, it's so smart and it's so weirdly respectful of every character, right? Like Mm -hmm. Ming's not Mm -hmm. a cartoon mom. She's, she's, she's exaggerated, but she's not a parody and her Panda has to be taken seriously as well. So there must be intention and agency, you know, in all of it. It's just, Oh yeah, it's great. (laughs) It's all I want from my movies.
1: (laughs) I know just storytelling wise, It was really, really satisfying.
0: I'm I'm trying to figure out how to loop this back to Hello Again, which does deal with parents and children, but not quite in the same way. I wanted to ask about the genesis of that project. And, and you know, it's a love story that plays out or plays with a few extra genre conventions, but it's rooted in very understandable human anxieties. I think that's a fair way to set it up without spoiling anything. Right. <laughs> and and so how did that how did that come about? I mean, I I, uh, I talked to Simu about it in 2019 when we did the the now rising stars mm-hmm. profile. He was saying he was going to that you had just finished it or pitched it. I think at the time they pitched it as a feature to CBC, and then they said, "What about a digital series?"
1: Yeah, um, he had pitched it uh, to CBC on his own, and um, when they put it into development, um, they had said you know, that he should team up with a more experienced writer. Um, Um, And we had known each other from the Real Asian Film Festival. I had been his screenwriting mentor through their um, Unsung Voices program. Um, And so we had, you know, had remained in contact. uh, So he brought me onto the project. And initially it really was like this love story between Jaden Avery um, and then, as we continued talking about like just the idea of love and and culturally, like how we express love and how love was expressed to us, um, you know, just talking about the family circumstance really came out that just became really important to address that. Just the idea that like the character Jaden's character is really rooted in his family and some of the some of his actions or how he reacts to things is is really rooted in how he grew up and so we get to see a little slice of like his family his mom his dad um and it was really fun too because uh when we cast alex um you know Alex's is malari junior is filipino and the character um, so we didn't want to then erase the fact that he's Filipino in this Chinese character. So then we we had the dad be Chinese and the mom be Filipina. And so it was a really cool way just to, like, integrate these different cultures very specifically into, into his life. Um, and it was it was fun. I mean, when we went into post, uh, we had this amazing composer Kirstie Rand, uh, who's Filipino, and he did this amazing job with the with the music on the series. And when I was listening to um, the music on on Turning Red, I was like, "Oh, he Kirstie could have composed this." I was like, "It's his style."
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's informed by, but not. Um slavishly devoted to a specific type of, comp- of, of um, orchestration, even it's not even composition. It's just the way that it's played that, that makes it distinct. I think in both cases, because turning red flirts with. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't even know it's hybridized in a way, I suppose, because it is still a Pixar score. You can listen to it and recognize the, the energy, mm-hmm. the action beats, but also the flavor is completely different running through all of it. And then, yeah, Hello Again, similarly, like it's a romantic comedy, but it's scored with instruments that aren't necessarily the first ones you'd think of, but they do, they work for the characters. They represent other, like not other nests, but other values that are going on in the background of the show.
1: Yeah, we, we really wanted to make sure that like, there was a little bit of culture represented in the music, but not so much that it then like, feels like really weird and other and you know what i mean
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and
1: i think the fact that it's in toronto and and toronto is really you get influenced by all the different cultures around you um uh that that, that could also be reflected in, in the music as well
0: yeah and it felt kind of almost like a statement that the first hint of something otherworldly is portrayed on the show through Boba T. That, that felt like, <laughs> I don't know why exactly, but that felt like something that Simu had in his head the whole time. He's, just, he's very Boba it Forward on uh, boba social media. Had. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that was also, I mean, we had a, a mini writing room after we went through development. And um, so Leonard Chen and Leif Ransaran, and, um, you know, we really talked about like, what is that supernatural element that we're going to push into episode one without giving away the whole thing. And, um, you know, that's, I mean, that's one of the joys of being in a writing room is that if you don't have an idea, someone else will, and if no one else does, like all your bad ideas will eventually lead to a good idea.
0: (laughs) I have heard this. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So yeah, yeah. The bubble tea, uh, thing was definitely like Leif and and Leonard's, uh, bouncing around ideas.
0: but it's organic. Like it feels like, again, it's just in the moment, it doesn't feel like it's been stapled in. It just happens to be that. And it's a great visual image, right? So why wouldn't you, it just, it felt like a signature to me just because of the, 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 the constant, I, I guess it's just his Twitter account, but he's, he, <laughs> he celebrates a yes. lot of things with, with poverty. Uh, yes, but, totally. but it also like, it's like, Oh yeah, this is, this is, again, this is the work of somebody who isn't just referencing things. These are the things mm-hmm. that would be to hand. Like, this is the world that just, again, with the chef stuff that goes on throughout the the fact that people are carrying chickens around, like it's not a gag. It's for yeah. work. It, there's a reason for it, but it's also funny.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> Chickens are inherently funny.
1: I know. <laughs> I think that's the thing is that like, we felt like it should feel like how we live, right? Like Yes, yes, we are agent. Yes, we are, you know, and yes, sometimes that comes up in your face in different ways. But you're also, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it. Like you're just living, you just are. And these parts of you come up, but it's not like a big deal until someone else's eyes are on it and make it a big deal.
0: Right. But by the same token, if you put that in the show, then other people will recognize it and feel seen. Yeah. So it's more important. To have it, than to pull it back, right?
1: Yeah, totally. And even even the like the set design, production design that Liz Bishop did. Um, you know, we talked a lot about the house and how the house should reflect the family. House should reflect them. And part of the conversation was, it should be messy, <laughs> like a ton of shit on the counters, because that's how our parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you know, we love it. If, if Asian parents were <laughs> very tidy and, you know, didn't hoard things, you know, all of the ketchup packets and stuff like that. But it's that's just the way it is. So she did like this amazing job, like layering all the stuff into the house that, you know, just made it feel like real and like you're just walking to home.
0: Yeah, no, I mean there's nothing about that show that doesn't feel lived in. Even like even the condo when we see people dividing it up and taking stuff out, it still feels like it's in process of separation. It's not it doesn't feel set. It doesn't feel like a set. It feels like a it feels like a, a place that the camera has stumbled into. Turning red kind of has the same sort of liveliness going on. I mean I'm just thinking of the contrast between May's room before and after it's cleaned out. <laughs> but it's a riot of stuff. It's a 13 year old girl who hasn't figured out all the things she likes. So she's just surrounding herself with things. It's, it's just production elements like that are so important, whether you're working in animation or or live action, yeah. like it's just, it's about who these people are and what the world they've built for themselves is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I love watching like crafts people on like TV or film, like what they bring to, cause you can write something and you can write in a bedroom but then they're thinking of it in a visual way and like asking questions that you might not even have thought about. and then like bringing all this this extra element to it that like really makes your script come alive in a way that you never even imagined it, um, which is amazing. What I was really appreciating is is that like Alex and Wrong could be number one and number two on the call sheet. You know, like it's very rare. Very rare is in maybe never
0: <laughs> to
1: have a, uh, or, you know, very rare. Sorry. I'll change that. No, sure, but I know
0: what but you it's mean. It's very
1: rare. It's very rare to have like two Asian, like it's number one and number two in a romantic comedy. Right. And, yeah. and to, to play, to play like the, the one who is desired is a huge thing. And that was a really big part of the conversation when Sima and I were developing It's just like, we've, we, we never saw Asian men represented in like a sexy way, you know, in a desirable way. And they were always like the butt of the jokes and like all these John Hughes movies, which are great, but at the same time, they're racist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you like, you have to put that in a box and, and like, ignore that so that you can enjoy the rest of the movie or for some of us we have to and i think that like has such a huge impact on on actors who are asian but also just on people who are who are asian and just like not feeling like you're you're good enough or that you could be attractive or desirable or you know all those things and i think um I, i'm just really excited that like alex and rong were able to play those parts and um you know, bring so much depth to to the
0: characters. Yeah. It's a good, sweet love story, really. I mean, at its core, that's the thing that is being chased in the whole in the whole narrative. And it's it's one that's fun to root for too, which is kind of nice. This is gonna drop on March 25th, which is the same day that Everything Everywhere All at Once opens in States. I know. And (laughs) you get to see like Kei Hui Quan, who was short round and data in Temple of Doom and the Goonies, like it's a remarkable performance. And he gets to be like in a tuxedo, in a Wong Y kind of pastiche sequence. Uh-huh. And it's just this moment of exactly what you were saying. I have never seen this actor, mostly because he sat out the last 30 years working behind the scenes as a fight choreographer and doing other things. But to see him kind of step out of, out of nowhere and occupy Mm -hmm. this space as a romantic leading man and all the other stuff he's doing in that film. Have you, have you seen it?
1: No, I saw the trailer. It is wild. Uh, Amazing. (laughs) It is.
0: It is so much fun, (laughs) but it is like we're in this moment where it feels like anything is possible. And maybe the genre aspect is part of it to sort of make it more accessible to funding and to production audiences are going to show. Audiences are there for all of this stuff because people are waiting to see themselves as the heroes of their own stories. But mm-hmm. what we're now with with the with turning red being a fantasy and with Hello again having a kind of a supernatural genre conceit and with everything everywhere being what it is, the doors are wide open. And then the next step, I think, is to just start telling straight comedies and dramas. And and I think again, like I, I want to see them. Let's <laughs> yeah, do this. It's,
1: it's so funny. I I feel like we are in a time that things are shifting, you know, like in terms of like what, who we're seeing on screen and stuff like that. And it, at the same time, there's a lot of unlearning to do, even for me. Like when I heard that our, we were going to drop the same day as Michelle Yeo's movie, I was like, we can't, we can't, there's only room for one. Like, no, no one will be able to like understand <laughs> Oh man. Which is like which is cr- it's it, it's not true. <laughs> yeah. But it's what we've seen up to now, right? So it was like it was like I have to also open my own mind and like it's okay there is room for all of us.
0: But there is room and and uh, you know the other good thing is that everything everywhere doesn't open in Canada until April 1st. So there's a window. You you can exploit this window.
1: <laughs> right.
0: My thanks to Natalie Younglai, whose charming new digital series Hello Again is streaming across Canada right now on CBC Gem. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nyounglai, all one word, N-Y-O-U-N-G-L-A-I. And you can find Turning Red on Disney+, Plus. pretty much everywhere Disney Plus exists. It's a delight. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at SimCast. SEMcast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. And once again, I remind you that the first year of the podcast is available for just $20 at payhip.com SEMcast. That's 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. Payhip.com SEMcast. Go buy something. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.